So we're going to jump right into it then. Okay, so if you would take your Bibles, Revelation, Revelation chapter number one. <clears throat> now, don't stand quite yet, because before you stand, I just want to say a few things. But if you would take find your place there, Revelation chapter one. Um, so we're going to preach through the book of Revelation, the Lord willing. And so I just want to prepare you, though, it's going to be a little bit different in some ways than our normal expository messages. There's going to be a lot of, uh, it's going to feel like there's a lot more teaching than normal. And I just want you to know, first of all, pre prepare for that. And that's okay, too. I want you to know that. It's okay that there's some preaching, in, there's some teaching inside of the preaching. Because you cannot properly preach any book unless you have first taught it and you understand it. Okay? The truth of the Word of God don't don't really make sense until you understand what the Bible means. And I, I spend a lot of time, you probably noticed, teaching and giving you a lot of uh, quote-unquote boring stuff. And the reason I do that is because I want you to know what the Bible says, not what I say. And then when you know what the Bible says, and that's clear, and we're together on that, then we can go ahead and preach it, and we can apply it. And, we, and don't worry. Once we get through all the teaching part, there will be preaching as well. But, but I just want you to be ready for that. There's going to be a lot of explanation, a lot of teaching. Uh, so because of the nature of this book, uh, we're probably going to spend a lot of time in it, and we're going to take smaller sections, and I'm going to give it to you in little pieces. Uh, one, because I want to make sure that we grasp everything that God has for us in this book. There's a lot in here, and I don't want to, I don't want, there's no reason to fly through it. All right, and so we're going to take our time and make sure we get what God wants us to get out of it. Second, I don't want you to get out of here at 9 o'clock, okay, on Wednesday, unless you just want to stay here at 9 o'clock. Uh, uh, so we're going to give you short sections at a time. And so depending on how, how things go tonight, there's a pretty good chance we're only going to get through the first half of the first verse, okay? Uh, but be ready for that, all right? Uh, and I do promise you that it's not going to be like that all the time. Uh, it'll get quicker as we go, but here in the beginning... Uh, this week and, and really next week, uh, next week will be up through, I think, verse 8 we'll cover, but there's going to be a lot more that needs to be said here in the beginning that'll help lay a foundation as we move forward. And so I wanted to make sure you're ready for that tonight, and I'm excited to get into it. So if you would, if you found your place in Revelation, go ahead and stand and we'll read, and we'll still go ahead and read the first three verses. Um, I believe that that's really the introduction that John gives us to this great book, and so just to get the context there. We'll do that, but again, we'll probably not make it all the way through all three. Okay, so let's, let's read uh, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things with, which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all things that he saw, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So we're going to start our service tonight, and, and um, the title is just this, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's about what we'll cover tonight, okay? The Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we'll get right into it. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this great book. Thank you for all of your Bible, by the way. We're so thankful that you've given it to us and that we can, each, each verse in this book, in this great book, is profitable for us. But Lord, we all are excited about this book in particular, and we're excited to dig into it tonight. And I pray that you'd help us to have understanding, help me to, to teach it in a way that can be understood easily, and then that we would take the truths of your word tonight, apply them to our heart, into our life and glorify you through it. We love you. Christ in my pray. Amen. Amen. Brother Josh, I'm going to do this. You good? All right. Thank you. <clears throat> okay. So, Revelation of Jesus Christ. So, I was studying this for this for months and months and preparing to preach the series. And I'm like, how in the world do you introduce a book like the Re like the Revelation? And you know, you know, when you introduce a series or introduce a message, even you know, preachers will often try to figure out some interesting way to launch the thing, you know, to, to catch people's attention or whatever and get it started. Maybe an interesting story, uh, maybe a quote or something that has to do with the passage. And, you know, I was studying the book and, and especially these three verses here, and I figured this. What could be more interesting to us as believers than these words right here? The revelation 
of Jesus Christ. And so if you don't mind, we're just going to go right into it that way. And we're just going to start it uh, at, with that phrase there. And so the first word uh, really in here is apocalypsis, and it's the revelation. Uh, apocalypsis, and that's what we get this word revelation from. And obviously, that's where we get the word in our English, apocalypse. Uh, but what does that mean, apocalypse? That word, that word is used often in all kinds of contexts. Here's what apocalypse, here's what revelation really means. It means to unveil, it means to uncover, it means to reveal something. And so when our world thinks of the apocalypse, they, they think what? They think Armageddon, they think the end of the world, they think destruction, they think hail and fire, they think earthquakes and war and rumors of war, they think the Antichrist, they think the mark of the beast. But I want what I want us to understand tonight is this, is that this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not primarily about all of that. It's not primarily about the destruction. It's not primarily about the plagues. Now, it is true that all of that stuff is in this book, and it is true that uh, these things will happen, but the destruction and God's judgment and God's wrath is not really the theme of this verse, of, of this book. Here's what this book is all about. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The unveiling, the uncovering, the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ in all His glory. And everything in this book really leads up to that. All of those seals and bowls and and all of the judgments that come and the Antichrist and all of that, all of that really is just incidental and leading up to the fact the time when Jesus Christ is revealed in all of his glory. Up until this point, the full glory, the full splendor of Jesus Christ has been veiled to us. Veiled. That means something is, is put in front and, and you can't see it clearly. And up until now, uh, really, Jesus himself has been veiled to us. He, he came to this earth veiled, the Bible says, in human flesh. He, he humbled himself, Philippians says, doesn't it? He humbled himself, and he took on the form of a servant. But when Jesus returns, every eye will see him in all his glory. Look at verse 7. We're not going to really deal with it too much tonight, but it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen, I am the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And that's what this book is about. And I don't want us to get so hung up on the interesting and the almost sci-fi feel we can get wrapped up in all of those details and forget that the purpose of this book and the theme of this book is to reveal Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Yeah. The veil will be removed. The term, the revelation of Jesus Christ, is actually used in other scripture. You can write these down. I'm going to go quick through them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.7 says, So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That phrase, coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the same Greek phrase there. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven. Talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ with his mighty angels. 1 Peter 1.7, That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The same, the same words translated the revelation of Jesus Christ right here, the appearing of of Jesus Christ. And every time that phrase, uh, I think it's, I don't know Greek, apocalypsu, uh, hesu, christu, or something, uh, I don't know how to say Greek. But whenever that phrase is used, they, people know what that means. And that's when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, when he is revealed in all of his glory. And so when John wrote those words to start this book off, uh, when he wrote those off, he would have been thinking about and about all of this and specifically thinking about the second coming of Christ. A man named W.A. Criswell said this, and I think it'll be helpful to us, so, so listen close as we read a kind of a lengthy quote, but I think it'll help us. The first time our Lord came into this world, He came in the veil of our flesh. 
His deity was covered over with his manhood. His godhood was hidden by his humanity. Just once in a while did his deity shine through, as on the Mount of Transfiguration or as in his miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder, and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and to thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time this world saw Jesus was when it saw him hanging in shame and misery and anguish upon the cross. He later appeared to a few of his believing disciples, but the last time that this believing world ever saw Jesus, I'm sorry, the last time this unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw him die as a malefactor, as a criminal crucified on a Roman cross. That was a part of the plan of God, a part of the immeasurable, illimitable grace and love of our Lord. By his stripes, we are healed. But then he says this, but then is that all the world is ever to see of our Savior? Dying in shame on a cross? No. It is also a part of the plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blasphemous, this godless world shall see the Son of God in His full character, in glory, in majesty, in the full-orbed wonder and marvel of His Godhead, then all men shall look upon Him as He really is. They shall see Him beholding in His, I'm sorry, see Him holding in His hands the title deed of the universe, holding in His hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, in the universe around us, and in the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in His pierced and loving hands. End quote. And so primarily, this book is all about the time when Jesus Christ, who has been veiled in flesh, will be unveiled, revealed in all of His glory, and every eye shall see Him. It's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ Himself. But another way we could think of this book is not only is it about the unveiling of Christ in a way that he hasn't seen before, but it's also a book that is unveiling truth about his return in a way that we haven't seen before. Well, what do you mean? Well, Jesus has been veiled. We talked about that. He's been veiled, and he himself, Jesus Christ, one day will come with, through the clouds, and he will be unveiled. That's true. But also, until the book of Revelation was written, the truth about his return, the truth about his return has been veiled until the book of Revelation. The, the, what we knew about the return of Christ up until the book of Revelation was limited, wasn't it? There, there were details about his return that we didn't know about. And so now, and when John gives us this through, through Christ, through the angel, through John, we'll talk about that next week, when we, when we have this book of Revelation, in a sense right here what's happening is it's a revelation of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and the, the details we had of his return, of the revelation of Christ, we always knew it was going to happen, but it was kind of murky, and it was kind of uh, un, unfinished in a sense. But when, we, when John gave us the book of the revelation, the details and the, all of the glory of his return is, is unveiled. Does that make sense? And so it's the revelation of the revelation, of Jesus Christ, in a sense. Let me explain that a little bit. So this book is filled with truth. In this book is truth that has not been seen before it was written. Right? Before John wrote it, there's a lot of things in here that we didn't know yet. <clears throat> the truths of the return of Christ were veiled in the Old Testament. It was written about in the Old Testament, but it was veiled. Um, there are 404 verses in Revelation. You can write that down if you want to know. There are, but here's the deal. There are no direct quotes of the Old Testament in Revelation. But there are at least 275 verses that reference the Old Testament or have connections to the Old Testament. 
Are you following that? So there's no direct quotes, but 275 verses reference it. And so what was known in the Old Testament and what was talked about and what was mentioned and it was veiled, it was largely veiled, in Revelation is now unveiled. Are we doing okay? And it gives us, it fills in the cracks of what we didn't know before. Jesus, by the way, also mentioned his return in the Gospels. And he would often mention it here and there in his, in his, uh, in his sermons and as he talked to his disciples. Uh, we have two uh, chapters uh, called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 24 and 25, if you read those two chapters, are talking about the return of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. And so we have that. And as you read that, there's some pretty incredible parallels between what Jesus said in Matthew 24 and 25 and, and some things that were said in the Revelation. But, but the Revelation gives it to us in more detail, doesn't it? It unveils what we knew. It unveils what was hidden, in a sense, what was murky. It makes clear. It's kind of like the return of Christ in HD, right? Paul had much to say about the return of Christ. Peter and James and John all had much to say about the return of Christ in their epistles. And so much was said, but there was still a lot that was not said. And so uh, that's what we're getting here. We're getting the full revelation. Everything, everything God wants us to know about the revelation of Jesus Christ. Does God give us all the details? No, He does not. But He does give us everything He wants us to know. It's all here in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Jesus is the theme of this book. Are we getting that? Are we catching that? Okay. And so uh, he's the theme of the book from start to finish. In fact, uh, Jesus Christ begins to be revealed. Who he is in his glory starts to be revealed right away in verse 4 through 6. Then verse 7 through 8 talks specifically of that day. We read it. Of that day when he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and all of his glory and they shall wail because of him. But then in chapters 2 and 3, he addresses his churches. By the way, every church is his, and it's his churches. Not a universal church. We'll deal with that when we get to it. But it's his churches, and he, talk, he, he addresses his churches, and he deals with their problems. That's his job. Okay. And then chapters 4 through 22 tell in detail all that takes place as Jesus takes back the earth from Satan. And he sets up his kingdom, both his kingdom on earth and then his eternal kingdom and then in the new heaven and the new earth. So it's all about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the unveiling, the uncovering, the manifestation of Christ in all his glory. Okay, so I want to make that very clear. Now, next week we're going to get into what I was going to get into this week about how we got the book. We'll deal with that next week, okay? But before we do that, um, I want to look at the prophetic nature of this book. The prophetic nature of this book. Verse 1 says this, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, and again, we'll, we'll deal with that more next week, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And so the things that are in this book, if you know anything about it, obviously they have not happened yet, okay? And we'll deal with that here in a little bit. Uh, every eye has not seen the glory of Christ, have they? No. And so really from chapters 4 through 22 are all future history. These are things which must shortly come to pass. So we'll deal with that phrase here in a moment. The outline of this book is actually in verse 19. If you look at verse 19, just a few verses ahead from where we are. This is the outline of the entire book of Revelation. <clears throat> Jesus says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And so the things that thou hast seen, this is past tense, whenever John is writing this, past tense. The things which are, the things that are happening as John is writing this, and then the things which shall be here after, after here. The King James is so hard to figure out. So here after. So that's the, that was sarcasm, by the way. If anyone's listening online, I, it's not hard, okay? All right, all right, back to here. Um, so uh, here it is, past, present, future. And so chapter one deals with the things that he hast seen. Chapters two and three 
deal with what is, what was at his time. The, the churches in chapter 2 and 3 were churches that were around at the time John wrote it. So those are the things which are. And then chapter 4 begins, and then all the way to the end, the things which shall be hereafter. Does that make sense? This is the outline of the book. Chapter 1, then 2 and 3, then 4 to the end. And so this book tells the future. And that's partly why this whole book is so fascinating to people. And it's not just fascinating to save people, which it ought to be. By the way, the entire Bible should be fascinating to God's people. But this is fascinating to God's people. But also, this book has a lot of lost people who are interested in it. A lot of lost people who know nothing else of God are fascinated with this book. Why? Well, because people are fascinated with the future. There's something about us where we want to know the future. That's why people read horoscopes. That's why we love fortune cookies, right? That one have been the nastiest cookie you ever ate, but you want one. Why? Because you want to see what's it going to say about my future, even though we know it's dumb, right? There is, though, a growing interest in astrology, in mediums, and in psychics. And it's, it seems to be exploding. And by the way, I see a lot of Christians who call themselves Christians who go to this stuff, who go to mediums and go to astrology and psychics to figure out the future. And by the way, I just want to clear up a spot here t- tonight and say we need to stay far away from that stuff. Uh, we're going we're gonna to park here for a little bit, okay? So not only do those people have a terrible track record, <laughs> people still go to them, but most of that stuff is, is absolutely seeded in demonic activity. And God is very clearly against it. So we're going to read some verses. You can write these down or you can try to turn. Leviticus 19.31 says this, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Don't go to that stuff. I am the Lord your God. And this, uh, Leviticus 20, verse 6 says this, And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits, and after wizards, and go a-whoring after them. God says when you go after that, you're going a-whoring, you're cheating on God when you're going to this stuff. I will even set my face against that soul, and will cut him off from among his people. God's not so happy about it. Isaiah 8, 19-20 says this, And when they shall say unto you, Seek unto them that have familiar spirits, and unto wizards that peep, and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead, to the law and to the testimony? If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah says, don't go to that stuff. Go to the word of God. Shouldn't you go to your God instead of this stuff? Second uh, Kings 21.6, and he made his son, if you're writing this down, I'll go quick, slower. Second Kings 21 verse 6, and he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards, he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. God is angry when we mess with wizardry and and enchantments and all of that, and and mediums and psychics and astrology and all of that. 2 Kings 23-24 says, Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits and the wizards and the images and the idols and all the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem did Josiah put away. He, gra- he found all of that junk, and he got rid of it. And he was a good king, wasn't he? That he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And we can go on tonight, but we won't. Well, suffice it to say this, that God's people have no business messing with the occult, messing with witchcraft, messing with demonic stuff, just stay far from it. If you're wondering about it, just stay away from it. Anyway, back to our study tonight. And so the reason I said all that is because this world is fascinated, fascinated with the future. Our society is, really we've always been, and and then uh, Christians, you know, get into that some maybe too far as well, as we just said. But because of that fascination with the future, unfortunately there are people who take interest in this book of the Revelation who aren't really interested in the Word of God, right? And, and so a lot of people study the Revelation and say things about the Revelation. By the way, it's not Revelations with an S. It's the, the Revelation, okay? Just to clear that up. 
But there are people who are, who are fascinated with this book who are not saved. There are people who are fascinated with this book that have nothing, no knowledge of the Word of God other than this book, and they say things, and they, and they, they confuse things. Okay? And they're just interested in the book um, just so that they can treat it as some kind of science fiction or something like that. And so because of all of that, there's a lot of confusion. And so this book is going to take a lot of extra and an intentional explanation. That's why I'm telling you all this. And that's why I said what I said in the beginning. Because we're going to have to, if we're going to see clearly what this book is, we're also going to have to point out very clearly what this book is not. And I don't, clear, I don't usually like doing that. Um, usually when you just say the truth, it's enough, and it, and it clears everything up. But with the Revelation, it's really not that way. It's, it's very murky, very messed up. There's a lot of confusion. I can say words that should be plain and easy to understand, but because of all of the weirdness that's out there, it's not. Because people have added meaning that's not there. People have found things that are not there. And so I just want to warn you about that, that we're going to have to say a lot about what it's not and then also say what it is, okay? We're going to have to do that. And so, to start that off tonight, this will help us, and we're going to get really nerdy right here, okay? So, so pay close attention, but this will help you. <clears throat> there are basically four ways that people interpret the Revelation. And this will help you to know why people think what they think about it. Um, they, there's four different ways to interpret it. The first way is known as the preterist View, the preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T, preterist. It comes from the Latin word that means past, in, in the past. And so they see the events of this book, the preterist, the people who view it this way, they see the events of Revelation as having already been fulfilled before now. None of it is future anymore. It's all been fulfilled. That's what a preterist thinks. It's all in the past. This is the same as Exodus. This is the same as Acts. It's all in the past, okay? That's what they think. Um, there are really two kinds of preterists. Some hold that chapter 5 through 11 record the victory over Judaism, the, the church. They call it the church, uh, the universal. Anyway, they're all messed up in a lot of things. But the church and its victory over Judaism. 12 through 19 tells about the church's victory over Rome. And then uh, verse chapters 20 through 22 talk about the glory of the church because of the victories that they had. And so the entire book, they believe, has been fulfilled by the time of Constantine in the 4th uh, century, I think, that it is, maybe the 5th. And so they think it's been done for, for a long time, okay? So that's some. But most preterists believe this. Most preterists believe that everything in this book was fully completed by 70 A.D. By 70 A.D., that's when the temple was destroyed. So the temple that Jesus walked into, you know, and he and he condemned the temple and said there should not be a stone over uh, unturned. So he was talking about that day. Uh, Jesus, you know, he he died in eighty thirty three, rose and and ascended to the Father. That would have been in eighty thirty three, eighty seventy. So thirty seven years or so later, the temple was destroyed. And there are some. There's a lot of preterists. And by the way, this is kind of a common. A uh, way to interpret this in, in, in Christianity, Christendom, I guess should say. Uh, anyway, this is a very common uh, thing you'll hear a lot, that this whole thing is all done, and it's only talking about that, about the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Now, here's, there's a couple of really big problems with that. One, there's no way you can take this book literally and think that all of this stuff has already happened. There's no way. There have been some pretty bad things that have happened in this world in the past 2,000 years, but nothing like the destruction described in this book. And so you cannot, you cannot take this literally and think that. Not to mention the resurrections. Has every grave been emptied? Should we go to the grave sites and see? No. Has Satan been destroyed? Because it sure seems like he's around. Has the entire universe been destroyed and now we're living in a new glorified heaven and earth? Is this it? Is this what we've been waiting for? No. And so obviously there's no way you can understand this book in the way, the, what it said, and take the Bible for what it means and come up with it's all done. You can't. It just doesn't make sense. And so that's the preterist view. Obviously not the view I hold and not the view we hold. Okay? 
The next is called the historical view. The historical view. They, they believe that what you're really seeing in the Revelation is a big picture of history of, again, they call it the church. Now we understand the church is, okay? But uh, church history, I guess, from the day that John wrote this until the end of time. So this, is, so this book of Revelation covers all of it. And it started to be fulfilled when, when John wrote it, and it has been continuing to be fulfilled, and it's being con- fulfilled right now. And that's what they think, that we're in the middle of it being fulfilled, and it will be uh, that way until he comes. Now, this interpretation really came about in the Middle Ages and, and with the Reformers. Do you remember what was going on in the Middle Ages and the Reformers? The Pope, right? And the Holy Roman Empire and all of that wickedness. Can I just stop and say this? We think it's really, really bad right now, but we're kind of being wimps, okay? This is nothing like the Middle Ages. And if you're one of those who says, wow, it is really bad right now, he must be coming tomorrow, you were not around in the Middle Ages. It was way worse then. And so they thought that. They thought, this is it, guys. Like, look, the Pope, he is the Antichrist, right? And they were, and, and look at this, and they got all these wars and all these things that happened, and, and so that started then, right? Are you seeing how that could happen? And so uh, they, they find a lot of different popes in here somehow. Uh, they find Constantine in here somehow. They find Mohammed in here. They even find the French Revolution in here. They'll force all kinds of wars and all kinds of world events and cram it into the book of Revelation. And so here's what they're trying to do constantly. They're trying, every time something big happens, they say, where is it? Because it's got to be in here. And you can get very confused doing that. Because this is not what this is. Chapter 4 and on haven't happened yet. But people try to force what's happening today into it. By the way, that's exactly what they were doing in 2 Thessalonians. Do you remember that? When we went through 2 Thessalonians, and we had those people who were saying, hey guys, do you remember when Paul was here? And Paul said that during the tribulation, there's going to be some crazy, intense persecution. Well, just look around. You've got to be blind not to see it. This is persecution. And it was, by the way. It was pretty intense. People were dying. People were being martyred. People were being jailed. The church was going through some hard stuff. Again, we're, we're kind of wimpy right now. This is a very coddled Christianity right now. And everything that goes wrong, we're like, oh, this is the worst it's ever been. No, it is not. And so anyway, so they're like, Paul said there'd be intense persecution. This is intense persecution. So here we are. This is it. This is the tribulation. And do you remember what happened to that church? They got all messed up. They were scared. They were anxious. They were angry. They were confused. It was a mess. Bible says they were shaken in mind. And I'm telling you that whenever we start trying to force stuff into this book that's not there, it, it'll mess us up. We can't do that. It's not, we can't do that. And there are people doing that today, aren't there? They're trying to force every event that happens into this book. Every, every world event that happens means the end is near. I, I looked it up and I was going to give you headlines, but you do it yourself. Look up headlines when the end is near. It starts in the third century. And it continues on forever and ever. And the end is near. And the end is near. And the end is here. Look at this. This is sort of like this. That means the end is near. And the end is near. The Antichrist is coming here. And they start setting dates. And the end is near. And the end is near. And you know what has not happened? The end. And you know what has happened since then? Christianity looks foolish. Because they keep saying the end is... I I know. I, I, mm, I If I say this, stop me. I know that the rapture is going to happen anymore. You don't know that. I know that before I die, the rapture's happening. There are people who said that who are in the grave, and they will be raptured from the grave. We can't say that. We don't know that. Let's say what we know, not what we want. All right. Now, would I like the rapture to happen right now? Of course. And do I wish that all this stuff happening in Israel means... The rapture's tomorrow. In some ways, in some ways, I, we need to get the word out. And I'd like for some people to get safer. But as a Christian, and dealing with all the stuff we deal with, I would sure love for the rapture to happen right now. But we do not know it is happening right now. We don't know that. We don't know that. Yeah. Okay. So, this that's the historical view. That's what people do. And, they, and they're looking for signs, and they're trying to... And, I, and, and you, you look up the articles. Right now, you're hearing it so. Never before in history. 
have all the signs converged. That line has been used for a thousand years. Never before. Here's why, I think I explained this. Uh, okay, I'll try. Um, in, in Second Thessalonians, remember how we talked about the Antichrist? And, he, and, and John said, not John, Paul. John's this one, Paul's the other one. Paul said this. This isn't the tribulation. How do you know? Well, because the Antichrist isn't here. Remember? And, and we're still here. So the, the rapture's not happened, okay? But the Antichrist isn't here. Remember we said that we talked about how there will be many Antichrists? But then there is the Antichrist. And, and here's why it keeps feeling like it's going to happen. Because the, the devil is constantly trying to find a man. And he's trying to make it happen. And he's trying to bring the world together. And he's trying to get globalism. By the way, globalism is not a new concept. How many empires have there been? Come on. Um, anyway, so he, he's always trying to get the whole world together and get a man in charge so that he can take over. He's trying and he's trying and he's trying. What does it say in, in 2 Thessalonians? He that will let, will let. So there's, so right now, there's, the Holy Spirit is he. We're not going to re-preach that. But the Holy Spirit is stopping that from happening. And, and if you're getting nervous about globalism, don't get nervous because it'll all fall apart if it's not time. Let's all calm down. We're Christians here. God's in control, isn't he? And, and the devil will always be trying to get the world together and, and overthrow God. But when, but, but if it's not the time yet, if Jesus isn't ready to come back, then the Holy Spirit will squash it. And he'll have to start over again. And he has over and over, despot after despot after despot, who has tried to overthrow the world. And it won't happen until God says it's right. It's time. So let's not get, let's, let's stop getting so, I don't even know the word, but stop it. Okay? It'll be, God's in control, okay? God's in control. All right. I don't know where I was. Okay, so they're trying to do all this and force everything into the Scripture. Here's the problem, is, is you can take and twist the Scripture to mean anything you want, and you can make it sound so right, and you say, yeah, and then they'll, they'll say things like this, it's right here. Well, what? yeah, those words are there, but you're taking them out of context, but they don't want to hear that. And it, it's, it's not tethered to the text, it's all subjective. And, and then the ones who believe this, by the way, all come to different conclusions, and they all yell at each other, because it's whatever you think. And however you want to twist the Scriptures to make this thing fit in the Bible somewhere when it's not in the Bible. And then what they do is this, and they say, anyone who doesn't believe this, they don't believe the Bible. When in actuality, it is them who are not believing the Bible. They're using the Bible for their own gain here. And they normally say things like this. Run if you hear this. I'm about to show you something in the Bible that nobody else sees. You'll hear that. Everybody else says this. Everybody. Except me. Everyone else seems to have missed this, even though it's right here. Can I, can I help you? The reason that no one else sees it is because it's not there. And Peter says, that knowing this first, 2 Peter 1.20, that no prophecy of the Scripture, this is prophecy of the Scripture, is of any private interpretation. That means there is not one person who knows what it says and no one else does. You're not that special. Okay. I'll stop being snarky. I'm sorry. So the, the major, so there's that. That's a problem. Uh, the other major problem with all of this is that the revelation is, is very clear that most of this book happens in three and a half years. It says it very clearly. Three and a half years, three and a half years. And so they're just, they just take it and do whatever, but it's just not right. And as, as we go through the book and as we explain what it means, it's going to be pretty obvious to you that nothing that took place from chapter four until the end has ever happened before. It'll be obvious. As we take it in its plain and literal meaning, you'll find that out. Okay? That's the historical view. The next is this, the idealist view. The idealist view. They see Revelation as, uh, as an unfolding conflict between good and evil. And that nothing in the Revelation is actually anything literal at all. It's all just moral stories. Nothing, none of this has ever happened. None of this will ever happen. It's just one big moral story like Mother Goose wrote Revelation. Okay, And it doesn't mean anything. It can mean anything to anybody because it's just a moral story. And it's all an opinion. And again, you, you can see the problem with that. Uh, there, there's no, there's no objective truth. It's just whatever you think about it. That's the idealist view. And then the last one is this: the futurist view. 
the futurist view. That's what we believe. This is uh, where the, the angle we're coming from, and I, I believe, obviously, what the Bible intends out of this book. And, and it's not like a, it's a different religion or anything. Futurist just means this. We believe that it's in the future. So preterist mean, believes this is all in the past. Historical believes it's happening right now. And futurists, we believe that chapters 4 to 22 are all in the future. Okay? And by the way, that's the only view that makes any sense if you're going to interpret Revelation plainly and literally. If you're going to, if you're going to take the Bible for what it means, for what it says, and if you're going to approach the Bible with this, it means what it says and it says what it means. If you think that, then the only, the only logical explanation is that, is the futurist view. And, and we'll make that clear as we go. Um, what does literal mean? Well, literal, it, it does not mean that there are no symbols. I want to make, make that clear. The Revelation is full of symbols. There are symbols in Revelation. Okay? It just means this, that we're taking things in their plain and normal understanding. And so, if there are symbols in the book, then we treat it like a symbol. If it's not a symbol, then we don't. And it's usually pretty clear. Like, he'll use words like like or as, right? Or I'll actually give you some, um, some uh, examples. Go to Revelation 8.12. We'll do this quick. Revelation 8.12. says this, And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the, what's that word? Stars. So as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it. And the night likewise. So is that word stars... This is like an actual astronomical body in the sky, burning ball of gas, right? The sun, the moon, and the stars, the third part darkened. Make sense? This is literal. This is the actual sun, the actual moon, actual stars. Doing good? Revelation 9, just a couple verses later. Verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a what? A star. Fall from heaven. So you're thinking, oh wow, like a falling star. No. Look it. And to what? Him. It's a person. You see that? And he is described as a star falling from heaven. Probably an angel. We'll talk about that later. But this is not a burning ball of gas. Are we following? This was obviously a metaphor. Are we doing good? And so you just it's pretty obvious usually. And and, and a key was given to to him was given the key of the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit. This is not a ball of gas. This is some kind of being that is doing this. But he's described in a metaphor as a star. You doing good? So there's symbols like that, but it's pretty obvious. Here, I want to give you this. This is the golden rule of biblical interpretation. You're going to want to write this down. This will help you in Revelation. This will help you in all of the Bible. If you're going to interpret the Bible biblically, here it is. This is the golden rule. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. You should write that down. If the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. That means if you're reading it and it makes sense the way it is, well, don't look to see if it's a metaphor. It's probably not, right? And if it doesn't, well, let's find out if it is a symbol or something. But if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. The problem with a lot of people who study Revelation is they're not looking for the plain sense ever. They're making everything a metaphor. They're making everything an allegory. And they get all messed up. But if the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And by the way, also the symbols that are used, even the symbols that are used, are talking about something actual. Like that when it used the word star, it did mean, it was describing something actual. And by the way, you have to think of this. John... When he wrote this, he would have saw things that he would have never saw before. He doesn't know what a plane is. He doesn't know what a helicopter is. And so he's seeing this stuff, but he has to describe it. And so he uses all kinds of funny language to describe it. Probably that's a big part of it, right? He doesn't know the word airplane. He doesn't know the word bomb. You know, and so he's got to make, he's got to use symbols to describe. And he says, it, this, what I'm seeing, it's like this, you know, and he tries to describe what he sees. So there's a lot of that in there, okay? All that makes sense? But what we're doing is we're reading this 
in the plain sense of, of what John would have intended, not to take it and do whatever we want with it. All right, so there's that. A couple more things will be done. Um, I want to talk about this, the proper attitude toward the book. So everything we've said so far um, makes it uh, studying the book of Revelation kind of interesting in a lot of ways. Um, there's really two uh, big ways that people think of this. First, people think of uh, the Revelation like this. This is all too hard to understand. You might be here tonight thinking, this is too much. I have no idea what's going on. I hope not, but, but sometimes we, we think that way. We're like, man, what, futurist and preterist and what's the stars and what's this and what's all that? And, and, and we get all confused and, and, and this guy's saying this and this guy's saying this, this guy's saying this and this guy's saying this and they're all talking about the same verse and they're all coming up with all four different things. And, and, we get, and we get all confused, and we're like, I'm not even going to try it. I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm not going to look at Revelation. In fact, you know, as I tell people I'm preaching the Revelation, they're like, <gasps> you know, because it's like, it is hard. And it's going to take extra study. And so sometimes people just say, I'm not going to read it, I'm not going to study it, I'm not going to preach it. There are some that are so sure that they know every detail. And they'll dig and they'll find it. And I know what it means. You don't know what it means? <laughs> that means you don't know, you don't love the Bible. And they start setting dates, and they start seeing signs of the time. And to these people, the Revelation is the only book in the Bible. It's all they care about. If we're going to talk Bible, let's go to the Revelation. And that's that's unbalanced, isn't it? We cannot get so obsessed with one book that we neglect the others. Okay? And so here's the here's the way we ought to think about the book of Revelation. We should study it. It is worth the time. It is worth, it's worth the effort to wade through it and understand what God meant when he gave us this book. We're missing out on a lot if we don't study it. And we should take care as we study. Why? Not because it's interesting, not because it's the future, not because it feels like sci-fi, but because it's the Bible. You see. And we should think of every book of the Bible that way. Also, we should give it consideration because it says in verse 3, we'll, uh, we'll end here, the end of verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So God says he intends for us to study this, right? And we'll be blessed if we do. And by the way, that is true of every other book, but it is not true every other book has this, these words in there, Right? And this book opens and closes with a blessing. Uh, you can do it on your own time, but in the very end, the last chapter, he says it again. Blessed is he that readeth and keepeth these things. And so, so God wants us, God does want us to read this and to study it and to understand it. And so we should be motivated. And so at the end of verse 3, it says this, the time is at hand. The time is at hand. Now, I'm going to go through this quickly, more quickly than I was wanting, but some people get really hung up on that. And then in verse 1 where it says, these things must shortly come to pass. And you know, you'll have critics out there, wow, shortly? Really? Because it's been 2,000 years. What does shortly mean? And, and you know, oftentimes that's what the preterists will throw out there. Oh, shortly? 2,000 years is shortly? No. Shortly means it happened right, right then. And they'll, they'll throw that out and they get hung up on, on shortly. Well, two things about that really fast. One, uh, shortly in this context, we'll see in a second, it doesn't mean uh, like right then, it means it's the next thing that happens. It's imminent. That's what John meant to give us. It is imminent. It can happen any time. It's the next thing that's going to happen is all of this is going to take place. Secondly, uh, what seems to us like a long time is not very long to God. 2,000 years to God is not very long, and it's shortly to Him. Okay? Um, but but to make that clear, um, look at verse uh, Romans 16.20. Actually, I'll just read it to you. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'm, I'm going to read it right now. Romans 16.20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Same word. And again, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure Satan's still running around. Right? He's still roaming the earth. And so Paul said 2,000 years ago that Satan will be bruised shortly, and he will, John agrees, shortly this will come to pass. Part of all that is when Satan is defeated. And so here's, here's what he wants us to know, and it'll be done. John wants us to know this, and obviously Jesus Christ, who gave him this book, wants us to know this. All of this stuff that we're going to talk about, it can happen any time. It is at hand. Any time. The word is imminent. The word is imminent. 
All of this could happen anytime. That's why, by the way, we don't need to look around for signs to see if it's imminent. And I, I'm burdened that Christians are always trying to prove to the world that this is going to happen. You see? Because that. Well, no, we don't need that. The Bible said he's coming anytime. And even if that thing didn't happen, he could have come. After, right after he put the last period on this book, he could have came back. Does that make sense? We do not need for, for Israel to be reinstated for it all to work out. We do not need for the cashless society to come around and the chips and, and all the things. We do not need that for us to, to know that the revelation is coming soon. It has always been coming soon, and it was becoming soon when John wrote this. Paul thought it was going to happen in his day. We all need to live like that. It could happen right now. And, and what we need to do as Christians is live this way. Jesus can come back any moment. And we can be comforted by that. And no matter how crazy this world gets, we can be comforted to know this. We win at the end. Right? And at any moment, Jesus can come back and fix all of this. And it also needs to motivate us for the lost, doesn't it? Because the reason that Jesus hasn't come back yet is because he wants us to tell more people before he does. Because if you have family and friends who are lost, if you have family and friends who have not been saved, when this happens, they'll be here. And you don't want to be here. The time is at hand. The time is at hand. That should bring us comfort. That should motivate us. And I'm looking forward to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how it helps us in so many ways. And God, thank you for the clarity of your, of your word. And Lord, mankind sure has a tendency to try to muddy the waters and make things unclear, but I'm thankful that your word is very clear. Help us, God. Guide us. We need you so much. We need your spirit to help us, illuminate us, help us to know what your word means exactly, and then, Lord, to take that, to take those truths and apply it to our life and to live according to the truths of your word. And help us as Christians to have on the forefront of our mind at all times that you can, be, you can come back any second. Lord, the time is at hand. And God, we're so looking forward to the day that you come and take us out of here and we get to be with you for eternity. But God, we are burdened for the lost. Help us, God, to have a sense of urgency to, to help the lost know that you love them and you died for them and you want to spare them from the wrath to come. We love you. Praise to my prayer. Amen. Let's all stand together.